HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Learn more and try a free sample at wildakpollock.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, but if you added bacon... Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears are available in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. Today is episode number 129 of Feast Your Ears, and it's Thanksgiving week, as you just heard on that ad for Meat and Three. Uh, Here in New York, everybody's getting ready to either leave the city or hunker down and enjoy the city being somewhat empty for the holidays. I will be leaving the city. Uh, I personally am thankful for listeners like you, and I'm thankful for Heritage Radio. We are a complete completely volunteer-run hosts, volunteer-hosted organization. We do have some employees uh, who run the run the nonprofit. Uh, but we are having our big winter gala coming up on December 3rd. We really would love for you to join us. Uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden uh, inside the Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Uh, there is a huge variety of food that will be offered um, from sponsors. I'll be doing ceviche with Lena Diaz, who's the butcher and fishmonger at the Green Grape Provisions. The fish will be provided by Greenpoint Fish and Lobster, and that is just one of dozens of delicious things. There will be wine, beer, sake, cocktails, a silent auction, lots of raffle prizes, games, DJ Cherish the Love, who's a host here on Heritage Radio. So please 
buy your tickets, heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And if you can't come, then become a member and join Heritage Radio Network. Today's theme, uh, why are we so obsessed with food? In the past, food was food. There wasn't any Chinese or Nepalese or Italian or French, unless maybe you were royalty. But even then, for the most part, what you ate was called food. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. Some people didn't have enough, and some people, again royalty, ate too much, threw it up, started over again. Kings had gout and peons were starving. While this disparity still exists and is, of course, far more complicated than we'd like to think of it, we now live in an amazing age where people can be at the same time obsessed with something totally new in food, like Soylent, liquid food made in a lab, without much of what I'd call real food in it, or obsessed with something ancient, like hollowing out an oak log to make a fermentation chamber and using it to ferment foraged edibles from the same forest as the tree, which I saw recently on Pascal Bowder's Instagram feed. Some people are searching for the authentic, and some are pushing the boundaries. Sometimes it depends on where you are. Much like only being able to forage certain mushrooms in a specific location and at a specific time of year, sometimes there's things you hear about that you just can't get where you live. In ancient times, that's what started the spice trade. People wanted things like salt and pepper, and they didn't live where they could get them. Eventually, that's led to a fascination in the America of the 20th century, with not just learning about foodways from another place, but wanting to cook and eventually internalize those recipes into our personal canon. The problem is that many of people helping create an interest in that food lived in the cities, where you could go to the Chinese neighborhood or the Mexican neighborhood or the Greek neighborhood and get the things that people in less diverse places were reading about. That led to the rise of the ethnic aisle in the supermarket, where things like yellow rice and soy sauce started to show up. Depending on where you are in the country, now this aisle might contain a decent selection of chilies or other south-of-the-border ingredients, or maybe there are various Indian spices and flavors present, but there's no consistency. In the third decade of what we now call the internet, there's a huge opportunity to connect with others and share information about food and cooking, and also to find sources for these things. It seems like you should be able to get anything on the internet, much like I've always believed you can get just about anything in New York City if you know where to look. But the great equalizer of social media, which makes us compare our cupcakes to the next guys, makes it seem like you can get anything that sometimes falls short. Either by a difficulty in translation or a lack of trust for putting your credit card into foreign websites, or lack of information for someone who might not be sure what they're going to do with hang or mobby bark, but heard that they should get some for their pantry. Snook Foods is a recently launched website and market that's on a mission to make high-quality, hard-to-find ingredients easier to order and understand. My guest today is Max Falkowitz, self-described food nerd for hire. Max has a great food writing pedigree, grew up in and still lives in Queens, and which is the most diverse county in the United States. He's also the editor of all the content for Snook Foods and their online magazine they just started called Caravan. Thanks, Max, for joining me today. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Max, tell me about Snook Foods. It's a brand new company. Uh, so I think you, you, you hit the point on the head that we really, the goal of Snook is ultimately to make foods of the world more accessible to everyone, whether they're foods that you've been eating all of your life and have had to drive all the way to the market on the other side of town that carries the specific spices or rices that you've been looking for all your life, or if you're looking to try something new and you want to understand more about not just what that food is, but how to use it and how to appreciate it in its cultural context. So we are taking, we have, I think, around over 2,000 ingredients from around the world, and that covers 400 types of spices and 20 varieties of rice to pickles and chutneys and um, condiments of every sort and shrimp pastes in multiple varieties all in one all in one destination with with trying to provide like accurate descriptions of uh you know 
we're you know, accurate, accurate descriptions of what's in there and give you information that sites like Amazon and other less reliable third-party retailers don't provide. Right. I mean, I, I love that it's broken down by region. And I, as I understand it, the site, of course, is expanding like almost every day. But at the moment, the regions available on the site, which is snookfoods with an S dot com, are Central Asia, Eastern Europe, Mediterranean, Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, East Asia and Southeast Asia. So, I mean, breaking those things down and, you know, one of the things that I really love about that is that those are focused um, not really on the areas that Americans are familiar with what we have come to call gourmet food. Well, to to exactly the point that you were discussing about looking for foods and places, the history of people looking for foods in places where they couldn't get them. So much of the history of everything around us is shaped by people trying to get access to the foods that they couldn't. And historically, uh, a, a connection, a loose connection of these trade routes was called the Silk Road. And it was a trade network that stretched all the way from uh, from Laos and Vietnam, through central China, through South, through South and central China, through India and the Middle East, all the way to the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa. And that really reflects the core of what we are offering for right now as food from regions along and surrounding the Silk Road. And we're currently building out our sub-Saharan Africa section, which wow. is really exciting. We are working on some Latin American goods. We're buffing, we're um, building out more of our uh, East Asia products right now. We have a bunch of new seaweed things coming in from Japan that are going to be on the site soon. And it's uh, it's really a pleasure to be part of a group of food obsessives that all they've all traveled the world. They all know what good food is and they know how to find it. Yeah. And we're... We're both making, and it's it, it's great. It's great to provide what I think is a really genuine service of of making the shopping experience more inclusive for everybody. And I think the the availability, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we I think that it's really important. While it's really important to celebrate the diversity of places like ethnic neighborhoods in cities in this country, and celebrate the fact that if you if someone is going to Japan, I can tell them where to go to the best kombu shop in Osaka. That stuff is not really it's not really that useful to someone who wants to explore it here but if you can get it delivered to your door and you have really great explanations of it and you trust the source like you guys are tying up i think a lot of loose ends as far as that goes because in the in the ethnic food aisle which is where you know when i was in college and i was like interested in learning about curry that's where i had to go and the stuff that's there while it gave some sort of an interesting like different cast on the food i was making it was not really authentic and to be honest a lot of the stuff just sort of tasted like old spices yeah and that, that's that's a, a major problem in the business that that a lot of these retailers online and in person are working off of they're not moving inventory and yep. we are we, we i think we're, we're unique in keeping a very wide inventory with shallow depth so we, we have a right. wide variety of products but we're not just holding on to stuff because we want to buy it so so every everything that we everything that we get is going to be fairly freshly you know, it's it's going to be fair. It, it hasn't been in our warehouse for long, is what yeah. I mean to say. Yeah. Um, and we're working with some wonderful fulfillment partners. Kalustians is a major partner of ours. Friend, everyone in New York um, who listens to the show probably also knows yeah. Kalustians, and they they've really been a, a vital partner for us as well. So, it the really the goal is to take the the magic and sense of wonder and access of Kalustians and bring it everywhere. For those who don't know, Kalustians is like the quintessential. Uh, specialty, uh, I guess, uh, subcontinent food store 
in New York City. Um, it, it started out Indian, but they have lots and lots of other things. Um, and it's like four storefronts wide now. And it really, it, there is a sense of wonder going in there as a food person. My wife always says you should go in there with a $20 bill and leave every, all your other money at home because you could just want to buy everything if you're interested in food. Um, and it's a place that I often recommend to people when they come to New York and they say, what should I check out if they're in food? I say, oh, you have to go look at Kalustians. Um, I mean, that is, I, I tell people that all the time and no one I have ever sent there has ever been disappointed. So, um, you know, working off of the the idea of of that, I mean, I'm I'm curious to know, you know, Max, I have this idea, and you and I have talked very briefly about this in the past, that you know we're coming to the the end, not that it's the end, but the end of this sort of celebration of just the ingredient as a singular thing. This idea that we should just roast chicken with salt and appreciate the flavor of the good chicken, while I obviously wholeheartedly support that, and I don't think people should go back to buying crappy chicken. I think that there's so much opportunity to look to the past and to look towards cultures where heavy spicing is important because you can take that chicken that you know was raised well and you know already tastes great and really elevate that flavor by adding in spices. I, yeah, there's there's um, a, a strange vein of ethnocentrism and um, and and racial ethnic bias that that, emer- that I think has emerged from that super sense of what defines clean eating and that clean eating if it's a chicken roasted with lemon and salt, that then if you're adding other flavorings to it, that somehow becomes dirty and that right. these ingredients that have so much pride and history and heritage and, and, and value to people, to billions of people everywhere, are somehow not the same thing as clean eating, that they're muddying things up. And this is some this is a, a tension that I've come across in the editorial world and in now the marketing world as well. And we... we Want what, what, we, what we found while, especially while building out the site and doing um, doing our design research for how we were going to present it, present everything to visitors, is that there's still a there's still a paucity of information available on the internet about how, how to use any of how to use a lot of these products. What do you sure. do with asafoetida? What do you do with Persian black limes? And the educational burden for historically has fallen on either volunteer run sites like Wikipedia, which are great, or online retailers that are selling you something and providing a marketing story as a part of that. And that's also fine, but that, but they're, they're the burden then should then they, they should really be teaching you something. They, they should really be honest about what they, about what they're doing. So if we are presenting all of these great foods um, to people, the burden is on us to show them what to show you why they're so essential to, um, to your cooking. And it's not just that, there another spice to add if you have some weak chicken breast that you're looking to make uh, that you're looking to make more palatable, but that that they're they're really essential flavorings to people everywhere, and that they they should they can and should become regular rotations of your um, of your spice pantry. Like I've I've written about spices for um, for years now, and the the big challenge has always been we want to you don't just want to buy something that you're going to use once and right. then let linger in your spice cabinet. I really like I, I really, we really want to make these like a versatile part of your um, part of your life, and so we have content on the site that's designed to to educate people about that, and then also as as we start getting. Um, as we start moving along and start building out more of our email network, there's going to be some AI tools on the site that actually like will help provide you with uh, recipes. Like let's say you bought cardamom on the site two two weeks ago, you'll get a check in saying, "Hey, how's your cardamom doing? Oh, nice. um, here are some recipes that you can use with cardamom." And then um, say a few months later, we'll say, "So by our reorder data from other customers, we're probably you probably are running low on your cardamom right now. Here, do right. you want to re up your order?" And 
part of that obviously is around is around email marketing panache, but sure. it's also about reminding you that these products should be an essential part of your life because yep. for people everywhere they are. Yeah. Absolutely. And then there, I mean, and then there's the whole, you know, people are obsessed with finding the next sort of like silver bullet of health stuff. And so much of that now, I feel like that energy is turned to things like turmeric and black pepper and, you know, chilies and capsation and all of these things that are part of these spices. And so, you know, I think that there's a, there's a whole, you know, if we're just starting to scratch the surface of looking at like, well, why are people in certain places have lower incidences of certain diseases well it's because you know or why do we have more of them here in the united states it's because we've been eating boring bland food that's mostly starch and sugar yeah it's it's <laughs> if, if you're if you're going to take a holistic approach to um to your diet that that what we put that, that you are what you eat there there's the clear connection to that is that we you know we we don't we don't want to make any firm health statements about the benefits of any one particular product because that's that's a you know the, the science is murky on it and sure. b that's not really the point of how holistic medicinal systems operate. It's right. not you take a spoonful of turmeric and suddenly your cough is gone. <laughs> right. It's you, uh, you know, you ingest like warming spices uh, for in a certain amount, like every day. And that helps your body just sort of like keep in better flow. If that's what your body, if that's how your body chemistry works. Right. And, it, uh, and all, all of these things are designed, like all of these things work best when they're part of an actual diet that you are enjoying eating and not just taking as medicine. Yeah, absolutely. So you uh, mentioned in the pre-show questionnaire, the first thing you learned to cook was dal, which I find uh, it is, is awesome. I mean, I know you grew up in Queens. My son eats a ton of dal. We make a lot of dal at home because we had uh, Nepalese nannies for both of our children. And so dal was something that was always eaten. And I, it to me, as you pointed out, it like represents this incredibly simple yet incredibly like great starting point for so many different things so what led you like, how did you originally learn to make it uh so that's there there's when you grow up in queens there's like a million different connections that bring you to every kind of dish and cultural reference so uh i i my, my nanny wasn't nepali but she was um she was west indian she was from saint vincent and she would sometimes bring along um rice and beans that had a bit of curry powder in them and it was just like such a simple dish that was so just incredibly lovely um Simultaneously, the um, the family that lived on the ground floor apartment of my building near the elevator, um, usually on Saturday and Sunday nights, was cooking something really fragrant that smelled a lot like beans and spices. <laughs> and it's just like like you know the family the family's moved out, but my mom still lives in that building. And I, I go home and I I go home and I walk past that apartment and. The smell isn't there, but it's just hardwired into my brain. Wow. Like all of those flavors come right back to me. And so I grew up in Forest Hills, uh, Queens, which is sort of right on the border of where, like, Queens becomes urban to suburban. And we were one subway stop away from Jackson Heights, where um, my mom loved to shop for jewelry and saris. And um, we would go out to eat often. And so uh, I grew up the son of two single parents, and they would cook, and they're very good cooks. But uh, we, re- we really bonded by going out to eat and going out to Jackson Heights was really a regular part of our dining rotation. This was at a time when the Jackson diner was still kind of new and exciting sure, and, uh, and also better than it's been sadly going downhill for a while, which is, which is disappointing. And their job was always really good. Fast forward to, um, me go, going off to college and learning to cook for myself. And I, wanted something that was cheap and sustaining and nutritious yeah. and 
comforting and reminded me of home and yeah. what would taste of home more than dal. And dal is a beautiful dish because you really can't overcook it. It only just yeah. gets better the <laughs> longer so true. that you cook it. You can, you can burn it if you're not careful. But it's literally something that you can make for $5 and have for a week. And yep. it just, it feels, every time I make dal, I think, why don't I make dal all the time? Me too. <laughs> and, and and there's a million ways to make it. And it's really hard to, to screw it up. So uh, I, I I still make it, not as, and every time I make it, I'm just like, geez, why don't I make this all the time? Um, and it's, my method has changed as I've, as I've, as I've learned more and gotten to know some other cooks. But it's it, how do you make your doll? So uh, I learned from uh, from uh, Nini Dolma, who is uh, she's Nepalese, but she grew up in India, uh, and her mother still lives in India. And her method is to uh, soak the yellow yellow peas, essentially yellow lentils, whatever whichever one she's using. Um, soak them in warm water first, and while she's doing that, she sautes onion. Um, and a little bit of garlic and then puts the puts the beans in and then covers it with water and uh, adds a little bit of dry turmeric like a like a half a teaspoon to a mm. you know to a medium-sized saucepan um, and just lets it simmer and just keeps adding water if there isn't enough and so you know cooks for like maybe an hour basically her sort of technique was to pull out a couple of the lentils or peas and like basically if you can crush them between your fingers into a paste it's basically done that, and, that, and it's like, yeah, that beautiful kind of like feathery texture yeah. that long cooked pulses get. I, I, I grew up surrounded by more North Indian influences, and so mine is more heavily spiced. There's, um, there's spices that you fry along with some tomato and onion, but same basic idea. Cook it forever, and you have yeah. food forever. And sometimes she puts tomato in as well, actually. Yeah. yeah but not always. Yeah. Um, so eating in Jackson Heights. I mean, Queens is such an awesome place to go out to eat. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, as people living in New York become interested in restaurants, there's like a certain aspect of like going to all the hip, cool restaurants. Like we're sitting inside Roberta's right now. You could go to Blanca. There's this neighborhood. I mean, Bushwick just got its first Michelin star. You know, like there's lots no, of really yeah, it did. Wow. and Gowanus too, I believe. Just like two weeks ago. Uh, yeah, the world is a weird place. Um, you know, but I remember being in my 20s and wanting to explore food. And like Queens is where we went. We went for Thai food. We went for Nepalese food. We went for Korean food. Like Queens was the place. So how, I mean, you know, back then it was like relying, you know, before it was like early 2000s, late 90s. It was very much like, oh, I heard about this place. Someone told me about this place. And we would like try to find the place. Now, of course, you can go on Yelp which is not always the best like bellwether of what's good. Um, you know, do you have any tips for people who are like just out and about wandering? Like how do you recognize a good restaurant? I, so part of it is, is, yeah, put down the phone and start wandering and look at where people are going. Uh, I mean, because, because I mean, ev all, all these communities have their own networks, either um, printed or online or offline of, of how they find, of how they find good food. But real, I mean, most of what I do as, as a journalist who still writes about Queens actively now is I just like look around and walk into places and think, oh, that looks weird. Yeah. And um, a, a perfect example is I, I uh, one of my neighbors is Anya, Anya von Bremsen, the author of Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. And she lives in Queens for a third of the year and Istanbul for a third of the year and travels. And she's my travels for a third of the year. And she's basically my, my, my hero. Um, she was doing a story for Airbnb magazine, um, which is a surprisingly excellent magazine and really well produced, about um, about food diversity in Queens. Was wandering along Roosevelt Avenue, which is the main corridor through Jackson Heights, Elmhurst, and Corona, and came across uh, this little cafe that was called Vanilla Cafe, 
Uh, it was a Mexican, ostensibly a Mexican bakery, where all of the staff were Chinese. And she just looked through the window and saw a bunch of Chinese staff at a Mexican pasticheria and was like, what, what's going on? She ambles on in. She starts asking questions. She speaks Spanish and was just asking. And, of course, the employees all spoke Spanish. And they had the usual Mexican pastries. They also had some uh, Central American uh, empanadas, which you don't normally find at Mexican pastry shops. And they're some of the best empanadas that I've had in huh. the neighborhood. Um, and this, you, it's the last place that you would expect to find them. Right. But it's really just about following your nose and being curious and yeah. kind of like attenuating yourself. To like, would you like, why is this here? And don't, um, and yeah, just like be open to talking to people and just ask yeah. them questions because that's, that's the, that's the only way to really, learn anything it's just talk to people and ask them questions and people get caught up in the search for the best because they kind of feel like their life life becomes or for some people i think life becomes like a checklist it's like i gotta eat the best pizza well you know what there's lots of pizzas which someone calls the best and really to me it sounds like you know maybe those aren't the best empanadas like empirically if you were to like sit down and taste a thousand empanadas but the idea of going into a mexican bakery staffed by chinese people and having a great empanada to me all of those things come together in the experience to make that awesome and totally worthwhile yep there, there's a real um and this is i think uh, the positive and negative benefit of of list culture is that it's gotten people into uh, exploring these things. And I, I've, I've seen people with either printed out or on their phones um, versions of a food tour that I've written about, say, Flushing or Elmhurst, and they are on that tour and they run into me and they say, who are, say, are you Max? I'm like, I, I, yeah, who, who are you? It's like, oh, we're on your tour. It's like, oh, great, I hope you <laughs> I hope you're enjoying it, yeah. and and I, and that's it's delightful. I like my, my my biggest hope for when they when people do that is that they also go off script and right. they find something that I don't know about, and then they email me and they tell me about it because that's how I learn about a lot of things. Sure, and and yeah, this this pursuit of this pursuit of of, of the best is really it's not how restaurants work, it's not how food food works. You know, ingredients change, chefs move around all the time, places close, and the the. Yeah, the point I think is is really get you know use, use these things as tools to get you out somewhere, but don't treat them as dogma. Yeah, you know none totally. of us know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah. You should just go out and find out for yourself. <laughs> uh, we're gonna take a short break and hear from uh, today's sponsor, which is the Wild Alaska Pollock. Uh, you should definitely get some Wild Alaska Pollock because it's delicious. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Wild Alaska Pollock is incredibly delicious, highly nutritious, and perpetually sustainable. Among the last frontier's many natural wonders, Wild Alaska Pollock just might be the state's best kept secret. This cousin to cod has lean, snowy white meat, delicate texture, and a mild flavor that makes it extremely versatile and tasty. Only pollock caught in Alaskan waters by U.S. fishermen can be labeled wild Alaska pollock. Unlike other pollock products, wild Alaska pollock is filleted and frozen just once within hours of being caught to preserve freshness, flavor, and texture. And now, food service professionals can try wild Alaska pollock for free. Request your sample at wildakpollock.com and discover the fish of the future. That's wildakpollock.com. 
Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and if you're just tuning in, Max Falkowitz is my guest today. Max is the editor of Caravan uh, by Snook Foods. Snookfoods.com is a wonderful new marketplace for finding uh, excellent ingredients from all around the world. Based here in New York, they've partnered with lots of great places, including Kalustians, um, which if you listen to this show regularly, you've heard me talk about a lot. Um, so you should definitely check them out. Before the break, we were talking about uh, sort of how do you find uh, how do you find a good restaurant sort of without using your phone? Um, and I wanted to, you know, talk a little bit, Max, about like, how did you get to where you are now as someone who writes for a living, travels, uh, writes about food? Like, what was your path? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to, I told you before we, before we got on air that I was going to try and leave out a lot of the guilt and sense <laughs> of, of luck. And I'm, I'm going to break that promise a little bit, but I'll try to be as, as brief about it as possible. So Growing up, growing up in Queens, food is just—it's what you do for fun because that's what we did for fun. Yeah. And like, you you go out to eat everywhere, and you go to bubble tea cafes with your friends, and that's just what you do. And that's that's always just sort of my idea of what restaurants were because like we we didn't go into Manhattan that much, we didn't go into Brooklyn that much. My father lived out on Long Island, and the restaurants there were more reminiscent of what you find in Queens than anything else. And uh, that's just sort of what dining out meant like white tablecloth dining always felt very foreign to me so that's that's really where my food experience was anchored and i was uh i was in college i was studying uh psychology and russian literature to uh then go into genre publishing uh at which i failed i didn't get a job for nine months despite trying and interning at a bunch of publishing houses and i on a whim uh emailed ed levine who was the guy who ran at the time a small upstart uh, food blog back when food blogs were a thing that like people did uh, called Serious Eats. And I emailed Ed and I said, so I really like what you do and I would love to be a part of it somehow. And Serious Eats, which had like four people working full time at the time, said, come on, come on in and talk to us. And we talked and we found ourselves like minded in our approach to eating and food. And suddenly I was writing for them with zero experience and they really should not have hired me because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it was a total accident and all of which is to say serious eats is still a great website and it has nothing to do with the ways that I screwed up in my early years. Um, and then suddenly I was running a New York city dining website and I, it was my job to know everything. And it was really just like, it really came down to talking to people and taking all of my leisure to just go around, uh, go around different neighborhoods and, you know, follow my nose and see what was there and like take lists as a starting point yeah. and then move, move elsewhere. Um, from there, I moved on to uh, Sever, which is a, a, a travel and lifestyle magazine and um, have been working as a freelance journalist for the past year on all of which is to say this has it's been a big accidental journey and it was never really intended and I, I, I guess I'm inarguably a food journalist now but it was really I think about just following my nose and getting very lucky at being in places at the right time that we, we the past 10 years have been such a fascinating time for uh, the way we talk about food, the way that yeah. we we think about it, the way that we are distributing that knowledge and that discussion, and we've really seen a total sea change in how that's done. That the age of the age of blogging, I think, is done. But the 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 ideas that made blogging so exciting, that concept of authenticity and accessibility, are alive in so many other formats, uh, in, in so many other formats now. 
And so I don't think the, the old rules of how we did anything still apply anymore to modern media consumption habits, but my hope is that that, that that ethos still propels people forward and ultimately makes all discussion about food a lot more democratic and a lot less top-down and much more about, like, let's all, like meet people directly and have and have conversations with each yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, 10 years ago, you know, Food 52 hadn't written a cookbook by sort of collective action, which I think was really interesting. And you didn't have, I mean, you know, the fact that uh, I think if a site like Snook and, and like Caravan, the writing side of it had launched 10 years ago, I don't know that the world was kind of ready for it. Um, but to have the kind of place where you can have these stories, you know, I mean, it, it is reminiscent a little bit to me looking at sort of a, a historical food media, you know, at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we have a collection of every gourmet ever published. And if you look back at the gourmet magazines from the 40s, 50s, even into the 60s, it starts to change in the 70s. Um, a lot of the writing in there was more travel focused and was also more narrative based. It wasn't about here's the recipe only. It was about, you know, there's a great story about Bulgarian feta that's not really about Bulgarian feta. It's like a story of a count who has to duel somebody to marry the girl that he loves and all this stuff. And then, like, feta plays a very small part in this, like, nine-page story. <laughs> that's, uh, and I think that the, the, there's, a, there's this interesting tendency when, um, when award season comes out that when, like, the, 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 the quote-unquote serious magazine article awards for, like, impactful journalism – rarely actually go to food publications, but usually general interest publications like um, The New Yorker or the um, there was a Florida newspaper that won a beard a couple right. of years ago, um, all because they are still approaching food in that way. Yeah. And that, 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 that quote-unquote food media or publications that exist primarily about food really have to, to, to that's a question they should be constantly asking themselves is are yeah. we getting too focused on a certain set of material? And um what I love about so what we're doing at Caravan is that it's 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 a it's the when I was writing the brand documentation for it is we want to make it as inspiring as any magazine and as useful and as as any manual that we're 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 creating what I think is actually a very old idea recreating a very old idea which is like the grocery store newsletter yeah um, which sure. uh, which was about you know here's what's new that we have um, here's like something that you didn't know about it. And then here are some, like, here are some ways that like, uh, that, that, that people are using it. And then let, and let's like, what are the issues that are of interest to our local grocery store community for our version at Snook? It's what are the interests, what are the issues of interest to our global, you know, food interested person community? Yeah. So we are doing interviews with, uh, with cookbook authors, with just interested cooks, with producers that we work with and, they we want to make you know we want to show you how to use these ingredients but we also want to give you a sense of just like, like what's what's happening in on the production side of food that other publications might not be able to tell you that we can that we can give you some insight into i love the idea that it is like that uh old school uh supermarket newsletter i mean you know just thinking about you know thanksgiving this week and this idea that like all of these dishes which we consider to be like these you know written rules about a roast turkey and how you know there's this like theoretical idea that the pilgrims and the indians sat down around a table sorry native americans sat down around a table and you know back in the 80s we still called them indians and you know ate this roast turkey when nobody had an oven right it wasn't like a cooking method that even existed really there was no there was no turkey at the first thanksgiving there were yeah. eels and oysters there, there was no turkey at all um, we just we just published our, our thanksgiving story at a on caravan last night and uh, the, the, our, the, the, our take on it is if you don't want to make turkey, don't make turkey. Right. Like, like roast a ham, like 
do anything like you know do whatever you want um or roast the turkey it'll be fine (laughs) i mean i i love that you are you know you mentioned zatar and i was thinking this morning i was like oh i want to put zatar on my turkey and then i want to finish it with like ground sumac because i want that brightness but you know yeah zatar is that it's that perfect transitional um spice blend i think for thanksgiving where it feels it's going to feel halfway familiar and halfway not like sure. that, that those thyme and sesame flavors like are really complimentary of like sage stuffing and cornbread yep. but that sumac is going to add a certain level of like brightness that um and that's that's a so citrus comes from uh three mother species four mother species um in east and southeast asia and for the majority of human history most people did not have access to citrus period citrus really didn't go west of the indian subcontinent for a while sumac which uh has two two available species one that's um poisonous in the u.s and one that's not poisonous in europe and eurasia uh the that was for many people like a, a key form of um, acidity and brightness for yeah. hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Um, and I love that it's getting a kind of resurgence now. And you can forage it in New England now. I mean, like there is staghorn sumac, which is a variety similar, not quite as acidic as the sumac you know that you buy, sort of that comes along the Silk Road. Um, but I mean, you can forage it in New England every summer when I see the arrows turning bright red and they're in these beautiful red cones. I go and forage it and then I save it and use it for tea. Oh, that's why I had no idea that you could eat yeah. that, that there was edible sumac here. Yeah, there oh, is. That's amazing. Yeah. And, it, and it, I mean, it, like on roadsides, like, I mean, I drive around, you know, in Maine this summer, I like pulled over and I don't know, filled like a garbage bag on like the side of the road. That's so, yeah. So, so many of our, uh, the ways that we talk about foraging in New York city, where there's a really urban sensibility about it. And it's this exotic thing. Where, where, no, like that's like foraging is just like a thing you can literally do on the side of the road. And if you go out to, you know, if you go out to like the suburbs and rural parts of Wisconsin, they're doing that with morel mushrooms. Yep. And that's just like a part of life. And it's like, it's, 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 it's born out of economic necessity as much as anything else. Like here's this thing that's free and yep. we can sell it for some money and that'll allow us to buy, you know, the stuff we need for casserole. Yeah. um so you know i I mean i love the idea that you're you're giving people these recipes and you're showing people how to use things um you know you had mentioned uh to me that you get a lot of inspiration from youtube which i find interesting i mean i you know uh i never look to youtube i mean i look at recipes online all the time to double check things and stuff and i have a you know more cookbooks than any human being could ever possibly need and i page through them to look for things but youtube isn't somewhere that i turn so give me some tips for looking at food stuff on youtube so this this is a, a problem that i think a lot of a lot of us who cook a lot have where we all have more cookbooks than we than we could ever use and as a result we're very rarely cooking from or at least i'm very rarely cooking from actual recipes right. but more ideas and techniques but finding description because of the way cookbooks are published and structured finding descriptions of techniques are is pretty difficult um youtube is this incredible cornucopia of content where people from all over the world are broadcasting, um, and they're physically showing you how to, you know, how to how to full, how to shape pasta, how to make a spice blend for curry, how long you should toast your spices before adding them into your pot of lentils. And uh, I, I signed I signed I signed out a story when I was at Sever to uh, Chris Crowley, who's an editor in New York Magazine, who uh, did a great piece called like the world's greatest cookbook is actually YouTube, and I, I firmly stand behind that. And it's it, it's 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 not where I would go to look at to find specific recipes necessarily, but to find techniques for like how to fold a dumpling, how to make paneer, because there's nothing like physically watching someone right. make that in front of you. And um, usually, like the 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 the, the, the 
the audio and visual quality of a lot of these YouTube shows is pretty poor. Um, yeah. But that's it, there's there's no there's no filter there's no cookbook editor saying we need to you know make this accept we need to make this like more broadly accessible to people so they understand it or give them a million ways to adapt something it's just someone how they someone doing how they do doing something how they do it in their actual home right um, there's a couple of recipe developers and recipe editors at food magazines that I've that I've talked to about this and they say yeah when we are trying to figure out how to develop some new uh, dish that's coming from some chef or restaurant where they don't really do, describe a lot of the procedure. We go on YouTube and we find out this is how they do it, and then oh, suddenly you know how to layer, you know, layer your filo for baklava. Right. So awesome. it's it's real, and it it, it uh, there's been a lot written about the problems of YouTube's algorithmic recommendation engines, but food YouTube is a fairly um, safe and kind space, and uh, you you know like the I'd say the strongest um, the strongest. YouTube presence are for cuisines around uh, South Asia and parts of East Asia. That seems to be where a lot of like, particularly like grannies and aunties are publishing content themselves. Huh. There's one woman I follow named Manjula who runs Manjula's Kitchen. She has probably around half a million subscribers, wow. and um, she does all um, Indian vegetarian food. And she's my auntie on request. Yeah, and she and she has made a cottage industry out of doing her cooking for the camera and sharing it with the world. Yeah, there's yeah, there's now there, there's there's this interesting mix of like teens and aunties who are making business like businesses on YouTube and those are kind of like two of like the exact groups of people that I want to learn how to cook from. I mean as a as a like slight non sequitur, um Instagram seems to think that I'm super interested in marijuana and so uh recently fed me a bunch like there seems to be the same sort of bifurcation in marijuana personalities on Instagram where there's like stoner grannies <laughs> and like stoner like teenagers. So just as like an interesting like corollary i don't know what that means but that, I, but, but the, the, it, it, i think it tells me that these are the people that you know you have people on the cutting edge yeah. and you have people who've been doing it all their lives and that's who i right. want to learn from and these are not people reporting anything or putting it through any kind of interpretive lens it's just people who are doing their thing nice um so we're just about out of time but i wanted i have two two questions uh related to thanksgiving since it's coming up if you have one piece of advice and i know i didn't want to do the superlative best worst whatever thing but if you have one piece of advice for people who are making or cooking for thanksgiving what's your piece of advice for thanksgiving this year uh cook as much as you can ahead and then just stop worrying because it's all going to be fine great and that's a good segue to my second question which is i'm curious to know if you think uh as a food writer and as someone who is now writing a lot of writing pieces towards people about things like thanksgiving are we ever going to get to a point where the audience is not worried about it, right? Because I, I feel like so much of the writing about Thanksgiving, like some of it is about try this alternative recipe, maybe make, you know, grilled scallions instead of green beans, whatever it is. But so much of it to me has this sort of attitude and comes from a place of don't worry, don't freak out, it'll be fine. Are we ever going to get to a point where people aren't actually like that that's not the tone? This is a brand new thing, not brand new. This is like the last 10 or 15 years have inculcated this enormous culture of fear around Thanksgiving as if Americans have forgotten how to cook exactly. like 10 dishes <laughs> for themselves. Question. And and I, I if you look past that, newspaper articles were pretty much, here's how you make stuff and it's going to be fine. Right. And I think as, 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 as um, the current superlative driven methods for the media world uh, continue to uh, produce diminishing marginal returns, which we're seeing literally month by month with um, with social media uh, updates. Um, we're that's I think that's going to phase itself out in part because fewer people are listening to those things as dogma and just following what grannies are doing on YouTube instead. Great. 
Well, thanks, Max, so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. You can find uh, Max on Twitter at Max Falkowitz, and you can check out and follow Snook Foods on Instagram. That's at Snook Foods, S-N-U-K-F-O-O-D-S. Snookfoods.com to order uh, all of your stuff. You probably can't order it today. Well, maybe you can order it. It's Monday. You could order it today and probably get it by uh, by Thanksgiving. But yeah, we do you can certainly order it today and get it for your Christmas shopping and any other cooking that you have coming up definitely check out the site and check out max's writing on caravan and you can take a look at his site maxfalkowitz.nyc thanks everybody for listening to feast your ears today um big thank you to matt patterson for engineering this show today and i just want to remind everybody i know i mentioned at the beginning our winter in the garden gala for heritage radio network is coming up on monday december 3rd please go to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala and buy a ticket and come and hang out with me and eat ceviche and drink a bunch of stuff uh you can follow me on instagram at the foodballer i'll talk to you next week for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.